0: Welcome to Island Idols I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu and you are Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta and this is a podcast about books and life Welcome back to Island Idols. Uh, We are here to talk about D.H. Lawrence, the man whom we discussed uh, not too long ago. Dad, it's good to see you. Calling in from Hawaii. Aloha.
1: Aloha. And actually, I wanted to say something before we started, because it's February 23rd. Yesterday was Washington's birthday. Everybody sort of knows that. Although with President's Day, I'm not sure whether people think it's... Birthday for all the presidents, but when I was a boy, you celebrated Abraham Lincoln's birthday on the twelfth and Washington's on the twenty second. But it's also, which I did not realize, the birthday of Edna St. Vincent Millay, an American poet, and she's famous for many things, but she's also famous for a couple of lines: "My candle burns at both ends; it will not last the light, but on my foes and on my friends, it gives a lovely light." And that. Poem was published in 1920, and I bring this up because this is 2020, it's a hundred years ago, and the 1920s are one of my favorite periods of the 20th century, so I thought I'd throw that in.
0: All right, tell us again the name of the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, and the candle burns at both ends. My
1: candle burns at both ends, it will not last the night. But all my foes and all my friends, it gives a lovely light.
0: So is this where we get the expression, burning the candle at both ends? No, the burning she... the candle at
1: both ends was an old adage. Mm. But uh, she gave it, so we say, immortality.
0: All right, Dad. Well, that was, a, that was a nice touch, bringing Island Idol something that no other podcast has. So probably, nice, probably. Ni- nicely done. And all, for all
1: those women out there, Edna St. Vincent Millay is a heroine. Okay. okay, on to D.H. Well,
0: no, this is very good because, you know, today I preached a sermon where I brought up another famous woman, Selena, the Countess of Huntington.
1: Uh, and you're going to have to tell me who that was.
0: Well, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley were preaching in the 18th century throughout England, and Selina was a noblewoman, and she was famous for saying, and so she became an evangelical Right, she heard the preaching of Whitfield and she was converted. I don't remember how old she was, I think she was about 20. And uh, she was a noble woman, but most of the people who were converted to Christianity to to evangelicalism were uh, they were country folk, they were farmers, they were peasants. And so, Selena is famous for saying, uh, I thank God for the letter M, I thank God for the letter M because. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians said, not many of you were of noble birth, speaking to the Corinthian church. And she thanked God for the letter M, because if it said, not any of you were of noble birth, she postulated that she would be counted out of the Christian faith. So I thank God for the letter M. Okay. Well, there we go. Two wonderful women to begin our podcast with. Okay. Okay. And talk about a man who loved talking about women, D.H. Lawrence.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, we forget, oh, I don't know we brought up last hour, but the, the novel Sons and Lovers, which is what uh, the, stu- is the subject for the podcast is.
0: That's right. That's what today's subject
1: the, is. One of the great novels of, uh, of the 20th century in English and one of the great novels of any century. It was only published in 1992 in its original unexpurgated form. 1992. 1992. Cambridge University Press has been, uh, had been uh, producing a collected edition of Lawrence's works based on the original manuscripts and modern textual principles. And a lot of uh, the material in Sons and Lovers had been uh, censored by the editors, by people who were reading it, and uh, so the, it, it's interesting to note that the book that was published in, what, 1912, is now, it took another uh, 80 years for it to be come out, in it's an original form. Alright,
0: so what you're telling me is the book that I read, which I would classify as PG-13, you're saying in its original form was probably rated R.
1: No, no, I did not say that, but We have to remember that things that were censored were not by modern standards or contemporary standards, not even censorable. They just offended people. William Heinemann, the publisher to whom he first submitted the book, wouldn't print it. He said it was the dirtiest book he's ever read. And it was Mm -hmm. published by another publisher, Duckworth. So standards change. I think we talked a little bit about this in the... uh, previous
0: podcast. Yeah, we talked a fair bit about that. And I thought it was a fascinating conversation because you and I were able to really, at least we tried to articulate some of the differences we have when approaching prose and defining, you know, what is obscenity? We talked about, you know, regardless of what the public deems appropriate, how does an individual self-censor, is there Uh, is there ever an occasion where one should be careful what one consumes with regard to art or literature? So that was an interesting conversation. But today, as we talk about his novel, Sons and Lovers, I certainly have to begin by saying he is one of the most amazing writers I've ever read. So maybe this is what we'll do. Let me read one paragraph towards the beginning of the book, and then let me ask you to give us a little overview of the plot. Does that sound okay? Okay. Um, and I'll just say that the story begins with a description of uh, the Morels, Mr. and Mrs. Morell. Walter Morell is a, a coal miner. He's in a, a, an abusive husband. Lawrence describes his wife as a deeply religious Puritan, who basically destroyed her husband. In fact, he has an incredible line at the very beginning. He describes uh, Mrs. Morell. He says, so in seeking to make him, Mr. Morell, more noble than he could be, she destroyed him. She injured and scarred herself. And then a few pages later, several pages later, Lawrence describes their marriage. I just want to read you this passage, Dad, and maybe you can use that to launch us off into a description of the plot. All right, and so let me begin. And Morel, sitting there, quite alone, and having nothing to think about, would be feeling vaguely uncomfortable. His soul would reach out in its blind way to her and find her gone. He felt a sort of emptiness, almost like a vacuum in his soul. He was unsettled and restless. Soon he could not live in that atmosphere, and he affected his wife. Both felt an oppression on their breathing when they were left together for some time. Then he went to bed, and she settled down to enjoy herself alone, working, thinking, living.
1: It's a great passage and uh, i i appreciate what you said earlier about one of the greatest books that you've read because uh it is an amazing piece of writing uh the plot is more complicated than, than i could actually you know give a brief overview of but let's say let's just ma- I'll, I'll make some general observations about the book I, I looked up the Library of Congress you know cataloging of the book, and the first thing they say is dysfunctional families mm-hmm. in the description. I dislike that word dysfunctional you know we think of oh, later on we're going to read Anna. Karenina and Tolstoy says all happy families are alike. Mm-hmm. Each happy family is <laughs> alike in its own way. Uh, but dysfunctional doesn't mean. But it goes on to say brothers, working class families, young men, England, domestic fiction, fiction, erotic stories. These are the different subject headings that the Library of Congress slips this Sons and Lovers under. Now, Mm -hmm. there's an old tradition in writing, an old tradition, but certainly in the 19th century forward, of what they call the Bildungsroman, a novel of growth. And it's usually a novel in which a young man starts out in the world, goes through a series of adventures, and by the end of the book has experienced... All these adventures and has grown both intellectually socially emotionally etc 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 and that's also compared with the kunst roman which is the same thing only the subject of the book is an artist so james joyce's a portrait of the artist as a young man would be an example of a kunst roman roman And Sons and Lovers, a Bildungsroman, a novel of growth. Mm -hmm. But on a more practical level, although that is, in a sense, the general, one of the general themes of the book. I mean, the writer's self-consciousness or the artist's self-consciousness, which we come to towards the end. On a more immediate level, Lawrence is writing a book about, a very autobiographical book at the start, about his own experience, Growing up in an industrial part of England, the Midlands, the son of a miner, and so those early sections of the book are very much caught up with the uh, with the dramatization and the realistic description, kind of that you described of uh, life in this mining area. Now, the scene you picked out tended to focus on the relationship between Morrell, Walter Morrell, and his wife, but that relationship, and also we also might mention she, his wife, came from a slightly well, a more middle-class, genteel uh, culture than he did. So there was a class conflict that was brought up in this, that, that is introduced into this. She mm-hmm. married down, in other words. He married up, but she married down. What was mm-hmm. she attracted to? She was attracted to his vitality, his what she thought of as his authenticity, his liveliness, his sense of life. These are all ideas that Lawrence is very much, obviously, uh, in, intent upon. But very quickly, the marriage you know, disintegrates. They're at odds with each other, and essentially they're at war with each other for 30, 40 years of married life. Mm-hmm. Into this world and into this background of a mining culture come uh, the Morell's children. Three boys. Three boys.
0: William, Arthur, and Paul. Okay exactly
1: the mother trans transfers the emotional attachment that she would ordinarily have towards this, the husband towards the sons so now you're introducing the theme of mother love mother you know and a kind of mother love that becomes so intense and so almost uh shall we say possessive that raises questions on the part of critics of, is this Oedipal, is this peculiar, is this unnatural, et cetera, et cetera, et
0: cetera. Well, uh, and if I can just interject just a a plain reading of the text, uh, Lawrence doesn't hide anything of this awkward attachment that the mother has to the boys. And in fact, she aims first at, I think it's the oldest boy, William, And uh, and when that fails, Arthur's sort of unacceptable because he's too rebellious. And then all of her attention finally settles on Paul, who is uh, who is basically D.H. Lawrence, except he's a painter instead of a writer.
1: Exactly. But the the point you're making about this, this uh, the intensity of it and the peculiarity of it doesn't really doesn't really is not really introduced until after the death of William. And then the mother starts to invest all of that attention on the son, Paul, who almost dies and is brought, you know, and is recovers. And then the intensity of the Paul and his mother's relationship becomes, uh, shall we say, amplified through the rest of the novel.
0: Yeah. And just to just to be really clear, I mean, at one point, because I I noted it, uh, Lawrence writes, Mrs. Morell's life, now rooted itself in Paul. I mean, it's very clear.
1: Yes. Whether whether Lawrence himself, some people say he was reading Freud and he knew about Freud, uh, is, you know, beside, I I think we can set that aside for the moment.
0: Also, to be clear, one can understand and be sympathetic for Mrs. Morell, because though... Though Lawrence tries to ascribe some blame to Mrs. Morell for perhaps setting expectations on her husband that were so high he could never meet them, Walter Morell is not described as a kind man. It's brutal. He is brutal. So, And she doesn't have really much outlet for socialization. A- anyway, just I'm not saying it makes sense. I'm not excusing it. But as you read it, I think you one understands why she might be turning towards you know her son for attention or identity. Exactly,
1: but I think to to you know comment on the point you just made at a base level relationships were at the, which is at the which are at the heart of Lawrence's fiction throughout his fiction it's human relationships male female relationships filial relationships at the heart, that's the heart of his work. And at the base of it, it's they are not just complicated, they're ambiguous. There's no way in which you can assign, I mean, it's easy to assign a lot of blame to Walter Morell in the novel. Years later, you know, Lawrence tried to amend that and try to create a more sympathetic picture of his father. Oh, really? So there's, an, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which writing the fiction was a liberating force from him because he actually wrote the book just after his mother died, and while she was dying and just after she died. And it was a kind of experience in which he had to express that relationship and divest himself of it in order to free himself.
0: And there are certainly scenes in the book where the reader is torn because Walter is portrayed as such an awful man. But there are moments when you are sympathetic to him. He's simple. He's hardworking. He certainly lacks self-control. But you get the sense that he's a man who wants to be loved and appreciated and respected, even by his wife. And dare I say, you, you wonder, if she had given him more, might he have spent less evenings of the tavern I, i'm not I, I don't know but at least the, the text leads you to ask those questions absolutely they're not going to marriage counselors
1: here mm-hmm. you know this is a culture and i think it's very clear as you said earlier that she in a way drives him to the worst Elements of his personality, or his, of his of his
0: behavior, by her, her her so he reacts to her, and and that's a strong statement to make. But that is what the author that's the statement the author of the book yeah. says. But Dad, before we get into sort of part two, where Paul's romantic interests begin to shape the story. Mm-hmm. I just have to say, and I'm wondering how you think about this. He was 28 years old when he wrote this. I think he was young. I think he was more like 25. All right. I'm a fair bit older than that. You are a fair, fair bit older than that. Correct. Even the passage that I read a few moments ago, describing a husband and a wife together and yet apart, that betrays a kind of knowledge of, uh, of humanity that, uh, is unusual for a 25 year old to say the least. I think
1: what we, I, I think I tried to suggest in the uh, previous uh, discussion, I, I think I quoted, or I didn't quote, but I was referring to Aldous Huxley, who, as I said, is one of the most learned writers in English in the 20th century. And Huxley was just overwhelmed by Lawrence's uh, intensity, by his perception it was almost like it was something that was, you know, it was not natural. It was not that he was he was not smart. He was smart, but he really had a certain, a sense of people and of relationships. And this is really what he drove himself to write about throughout his career. And he said, even about sons and lovers, after he stepped back from it, he says, it's not just my, it's not just, My autobiography, it's not his autobiography. He says it's a book about the young men of England Mm -hmm. of a whole generation. And he referenced uh, John Ruskin. He says it's his story. In other words, the repression that uh, he's describing and the people's inability, men's inability to discover, find themselves, to relate to other people seriously and on a deep level. Was something that he thought was a was a general universal problem, and he came to see his book *Sons and Lovers* not just as his autobiographical uh, story, but as the story of a generation of men for whom he was writing.
0: It sounds like the type of statement one would make about men in more recent generations, and yet this was written, uh, you know, so so long ago. Dad, how does the plot continue?
1: Well, we get into the secondary plot when Paul's romantic life starts to uh take shape. You know, he's trying to follow his mother's wishes, become a, a person who's gonna get up in the world, not follow the father's life in the mines. He's gonna have a nice, genteel, middle class life, mm-hmm. he'll be a painter, he'll sell some he gets some. He gets some uh, commissions, some sure. and you know this, this is Mickey Mouse stuff, really. But his mother thinks this is wonderful, but this is really not serious art, you see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, you know he starts to see. He starts He's interested in women, in young women, and he he meets a young woman, Miriam, who becomes really the first great love of his life, and she's intellectually, you know, sympathetic she's interested in the same things he's interested in so they have this long relationship but they do not consummate the relationship physically and so this is this and of course the mother is resentful of the relationship and becomes a kind of uh antagonistic force keeping Miriam and Paul from perce- moving forward and eventually Paul breaks with Miriam because he's dissatisfied constricting a lot. He eventually meets another woman, Clara, who is married older than him and really becomes his first great sexual partner.
0: She is estranged from her husband at the time of this romance.
1: Correct. I don't even know if I would use the word romance, but You know, but that's what it is. Of course, it's a, it's an affair, Mm -hmm. but it's an affair that touches him deeply and again, awakens the physical part of him and the life part of him. So that with Clara, there is the sensual Paul emerging. With Miriam, there's more of a, I would say a sympathetic spiritual part of himself emerging, but neither of them are successful. The mother is the, is the force that is tied, that he's tied to most dramatically and in a way inhibits a complete relationship with the young women.
0: Okay, fair enough. I, I think that uh, I want to talk about Miriam for a moment. Uh, as, as I read the book, I was struck that, that Miriam at times seemed almost two-dimensional to Paul's three-dimensional nature. She's presented as—so she is, she's rural— uh, Miriam and her family, they live on a farm, mm-hmm. and that seems to be contrasting this industrial age so there's something idyllic about Miriam's homestead. She is much more religious now it's a Unitarian religion which uh you know is certainly not orthodox, but in the context of the book, she is a a church going uh mm-hmm. sincere uh woman, and paul sees in her, in her religion, a certain amount of self-righteousness and even pride. So dad, if you would listen, and this is the reason, the reason why I bring this up is twofold. Number one, as a Christian pastor, I'm always on the lookout for the religious themes Hmm. and, uh, you know, potentially to a fault, but it's not difficult to find it. But the second reason I bring it up, because it's such a refrain, it's such a repeated idea that you can't help but think, Her religion practically drove him away. So at one point, uh, we read uh, about Miriam. To Miriam, Christ and God made one great figure, which she loved tremblingly and passionately when a tremendous sunset burned out the western sky, which is just a remarkable sentence in and of itself. It goes on, uh, Lawrence goes on to write, she went to church reverently with bowed head and quivered in anguish from the vulgarity of the other choir girls and from the common sounding voice of the curate. In other words, here's this woman who's deeply religious and yet it's not, it's the kind of religiosity that sounds smug and self-righteous and unattractive. And yet she very much wants Paul to share in her spirituality, and he's never able to do it.
1: uh well, he's not religious himself. i mean and 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 of course, Lawrence, you know, clearly had no interest in religion in any in any form or shape, but he writes about a world in which people are religious. I mean, even the morell family, you know make uh, you know uh, go through the motions of church going and paying you know paying lip service to religion, but whether it's her religious convictions that prevent her from find you know from satisfying Paul or not, it is simply not what he is looking for. he's not what he's looking for he's looking for a deeper attachment and it's you can say it's it's obviously it's physical, but it's more than physical
0: it is more than physical he he was not he wanted to be attracted to her. He could not commit himself to her, and uh, that him away. Okay?
1: Then he meets Clara. And so the feeling that you know, now he can experience this, but that's not satisfying either. He has this tremendously uh, this tremendously uh successful, you know, satisfying relationship with Clara physically. But in the end, he breaks off with her as well, and he even reconciles her with her husband, gets them together again. That's and, right. And here's where the mother, it, it, the mother becomes the force that is pre- traditionally viewed as in, in terms of interpreting the novel. The mother is the force that is keeping Paul from actually achieving any kind of real consummation with either Miriam or with Clara. I'm not sure that's exactly the case, but certainly in the novel, with the death of the mother, Paul is released. But the interesting thing is he's not released to any kind of success. You know, the end of the novel does not show him, aha, now I've had one relation, I've had another relation, and now I can go on to find my true expression. At the end, he's just alone, and he's uh, unsure what he's going to do. He has no purpose. All he's, the, only, the only hopeful sign at the end is that he marches to the town quickly. He doesn't commit mm-hmm. suicide. And I think partly it's because Lawrence is showing that the, the consequences of Paul's life, Paul's upbringing, his experiences, are damaging. The mother damages him just as the father damages him. Uh, he hates the father, and that's damaging. He loves the mother and that's damaging. In the end, he's a damaged, tragic figure, I think, but not one who has absolutely no hope. At least Lawrence leaves a glimmer or let's say a a sliver of light suggesting Paul might have a future. And of course, he then takes off from that in the next books where he he raises women in love and the rainbow.
0: Well, Dad, in our last podcast, I I I suggested the possibility that D. H. Lawrence was something of uh, Henry David Thoreau 2.0. And you said, no, you know, Thoreau is more of a materialist, and uh, Lawrence is really more, more mystical, more open to something. As I read Sons and Lovers, it really looked to me like uh Lawrence is more than uninterested in Christianity. Uh, he is he's attacking it with gusto. Uh, there are passages where I mean he quite literally says that Paul attacked the faith of Miriam with glee. And towards the end of the book, he gives up Miriam. And he gives up any, any semblance of faith. So listen, listen to what Lawrence writes. Religion was fading into the background. He had shoveled away all the beliefs that would hamper him, had cleared the ground, and come more or less to the bedrock of belief that one should feel inside oneself for right and wrong and should have the patience to gradually realize one's God now life interested him more. So with Miriam, there's some semblance of moral sensibility, of moral restraint. But as he attacks her faith, as he distances himself, distances himself from Miriam, he wants to do what he wants to do. Like Woody Allen, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. And that seems to be where where Paul lands. Is that fair?
1: I think that passage that you read is very is very revelatory of Lawrence Lawrence really believed that knowing what was important is internal It's something you come to and you discover and you experience and that you mm-hmm. proceed upon that in that respect you see the religion it's not the religion that he's attacking he's attacking all of civilization that doesn't recognize what he recognizes, that life is something to be experienced intensely and discovered intensely and anything short of that. And, in, and this involves relationships. Anything short of that is not living. You see, it's like being an automaton. And that's everybody, you know, that's not Lawrence, is a kind of unliving being so to speak i mean that's metaphorical
0: yeah i want to give lawrence some some credit even though I, I do think he's attacking religion but he is he's nothing if not consistent so towards the very end right before he's marching off towards i think the, the the city that he's walking to quickly is glowing so there is a i guess there's a little bit of hope that there's going to be life or light in the city he's specul he's a. Uh, You know, he doesn't have Miriam or doesn't want Miriam. He doesn't have Clara. Of course, his mother is dead. And he he writes this. There was no time and time is capitalized. Only space. Who could say his mother had lived and did not live? She had been in one place and was in another. That was all. And his soul could not leave her wherever she was. Here's a I mean this is philosophy and he's just making he's a 25-year-old kind of making it up as he's as he's going along. Well,
1: yeah, but that's quite good making up. <laughs> I mean, that's really quite impressive I think when you think about it. I mean, he doesn't believe in God, so he doesn't believe in an afterlife. His mother whom he's been a, who's been a part of him and you know, is very his very cellular nature is stuck to his mother. She's gone, and yet he says, well, she's not really gone because I'm carrying her with me, and I mean I'm just going to go forward and she will be with me just like all these other people will be with me until I find, you know, the relationship that really all of this experience will, 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 will be the consummation of, which he finds in the next books, not to put too minus point on it.
0: Perhaps the question is too simple, but uh why did you teach sons and lovers to your students over the years? What did you think they they needed from this book?
1: well, they needed to they needed to read one of the great writers of the twentieth century in english i mean that's that, there's no debate that this is one of the great great novels of english literature and of course, you know to discover you know a writer who pays so much attention. To relationships and yes, to sex is not an unimportant thing, and to and to uh, find ways in which he values it, and expresses it, and promotes it, if you will, as a way of living and as a way of being in the world that is got the what he called the shimmer of life. I mean that you know. You you have to pick books that are representative and emblematic, and Lawrence's is, is, is "Sons and Lovers" is, is one of them. It's I, it's not his greatest novel. I mean, what's his
0: greatest novel?
1: Uh, "Women in Love" and "The Rainbow" are his probably his greatest novels, but it's damn good. And uh, it's you know when you when you pick books for students, you have to consider a couple of things. You have to consider the importance of the book, and you also have to impl- consider the student's ability to read the book. Mm-hmm. Some books are not easily read, and you just putting them out in the syllabus is not going to do it, the student any good. Mm-hmm. The Rainbow is a more difficult book to read for a student at 18 years old than Sons and Lovers. So mm-hmm. that would be a choice for why would choose choose the Sons and Lovers.
0: Dad, do you have any uh, any critique, any... Any are there any weaknesses? Is there anything that uh, one way to ask the question is without sort of criticizing Sons and Lovers, but recognizing it was written by a 25 year old young man? Are there things that any man uh, who lived another 40 years might have experienced or understood that would have provided a kind of depth or texture to this novel that that isn't there? Do you have any any idea? I'm not sure I, I completely uh, understand the
1: question. You mean are you asking me whether there's something in the book that you could, you would see beyond the, your first reading?
0: No, I'm asking. So, I mean, I certainly have critiques of the book. A couple issues, of course, that I would take with it. Mm-hmm. Th- uh, theologically isn't quite the right term, but just from a literary perspective, recognizing it was a book written by a 25-year-old. It's not perfect. what would be you know what would you what would you tell him? Some people would say that it's a little
1: formless. They think that uh, the incidents and in the chapters are sort of you know their experiences lifted from Lawrence's life and then plopped down successively in the book. So okay they'd say that uh, that has been that's one thing that critics have said about the book. I myself don't agree with that because I'm not I'm not particularly, you know, uh, bothered by the shape of the book, right? And a lot of people would say the early part of the book, which is so intensely realistic, the description yes. of the marriage of the coal yes. mines of the coal miner's life of the young Paul and William, is almost hard to hard to uh, keep going by the second half of the book which becomes a more conventional love series of love stories.
0: Okay, that is exactly right. I have to say that the first half of this book was a, one of the most amazing things I've ever read. Just the prose itself was unbelievable and I thought it's like you couldn't put it down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But I think as it goes on and as I as I was confronted by his message, I think, you know, as someone with my own worldview that is not Lawrence's worldview, his message sort of got under my skin, which I trust is what he wanted, what he wanted to happen. Yes, I, absolutely. I mean,
1: the book did its work. The book did its work. It's calling attention to the fact that the way you see the world, not you, Aaron Menikoff, but the way people see the world from Lawrence's perspective is you know is incorrect. It's lacking in in substance. It's you know it's uh, automatic. You know, and I'm trying to make you realize that there's something more there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I would say, generally speaking, for, for just my own experience and my own added, my own thought, my own ideas about this, you know, books are novels are complicated, you know, constructions. And very few of them are really perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're looking for a novel that has, you know, the reason I think The Great Gatsby is the universal, you know, go-to book for high school teachers is because it's short enough to be read and they can't find a thing to say about it that's not wonderful from sentence to sentence. But it's really a long, long story. You get a big book like, like Sons and Lovers, you know, the first 100 pages are marvelous, but does that mean you're going to be able to keep it going for another
0: th- 200 pages? Right, right. Fair enough. I mean, so that's my, uh, that's my view. Let me point out a couple quick things that I would say so, as I reflected on Sons and Lovers, which I certainly enjoyed thoroughly. At the end of the day, Paul is presented as someone who is, for his life, the judge of what's right and what's wrong. And he says it baldly. He just mm-hmm. comes out and, and states it. As you read the, as you read the narrative, what, that, what, that, what I walked away from was this idea that in Paul's mind, you know, it's Miriam's fault. Mm-hmm. It's his mother's fault. It's Clara's fault. And you walk away thinking that Paul never really understands that as a, a young man, but as a man— there comes a point where he ought to take ownership for his relationships, and instead he is simply the sun around which everyone is orbiting and either getting burned up or or not. And so he's arrogant. Oh, well, that was well said. And, and then the other, go
1: ahead. No, he's arrogant, and you're absolutely right about this, but it's his story. It's his story that he's telling that Lawrence is telling through him. And so whether he's giving Miriam a fair shake or not is, is not, uh, is not an issue for him.
0: Fair enough. And then the one, the one other thing that I would say, and I'll, I'll end with this and give you any last comments that you want to make dad, but the, the religion that Paul is reacting against, I just have to say, is not any Christianity that I'm familiar with. Um, there was a there was a sociologist who came out a number of years ago and coined a phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. He said the, the 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 average religion of the young person in America was moralistic therapeutic deism. There is a god deism, but he's not really personally involved in anything. He's basically there to make your life a little bit better so you can get through hard things. Therapeutic. And basically, when he is interested, he's just basically interested in you being good or bad, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And maybe you could take the deism part out to some degree, but this is the religion that Lawrence is putting in Miriam's head uh, as the author. It's not. So I would say that like true religion, orthodox religion is freeing, not constraining and it's easy to sort of present a picture of these kind of like a judgmental self-righteous you know girl who goes to church and and looks askew at people who don't live up to her standards it's easy to lift that up and to reject it but it's not a beautiful it's not an accurate pr- picture of the christianity presented in, in the bible which says you know it's actually going to serve you well and bring you joy to build your life around God instead of of booting him out. And so I'm fine if he rejects it. It would just be nice if I knew that he was rejecting the real deal.
1: He's writing about the religion that he knew. Well,
0: and that's that's not his fault.
1: uh, Exactly. And the other thing I would say is I disagree with you a little bit in terms of Miriam's religiosity as being the reason why Paul – rejects her i don't think that's the main reason i think it's part of her whole shall we say her whole mentality she's a little too conventional to be honest i think Mm -hmm. she's a she she can't call a bourgeois because she's country but she's too conventional she doesn't have the audacity or the audaciousness that someone like clara has you see Mm -hmm. she's not bold in that respect and so she doesn't she doesn't attract paul you know she paul finds himself a little bit you know at odds with that but your more general question i don't know if there's a more general question i mean the fact that you could you could respond so vigorously and so uh so viscerally to lawrence's writing suggests that this is a writer that people really cannot you know dismiss for mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for for reasons of their particular uh, world view or their particular uh, point of view in the in, in their work. Lawrence I would say for for listeners who would be sort of intrigued that they don't want to immediately pick up a 500 page book by uh, because if they, li- if they if they go out to read Sons and Lovers you have to get the Cambridge University edition which has no footnotes it's just a regular book published just with the, with the text. He he, as I said last time, he's one of the great short story writers in English, and stories like "The Odor of Chrysanthemums," "The Prussian Officer," "The Horse Dealer's Daughter," "The Rocking Horse Wither," uh, "Tickets Please." These are stories that are just, you know. They're spectacular in their brevity and their intensity, and in those stories you're not likely to find any criticisms about formlessness or shapelessness, or they are very compressed and they are very brilliantly structured, and they're very they're, they're immediately accessible. So if a if a listener is at all intrigued by Lawrence, I would recommend. Checking out one of his collections of short stories and just reading through two or three stories and seeing, you know, how you respond to them. And then then say, well, now I can read Sons and Lovers. The reason I say this is because, to be honest, Lawrence's reputation today is not what it was when I was coming of age and Mm -hmm. uh, learning about, you know, uh, English language novelists. He took a big hit with the feminist movement because they saw his attitudes as, as you describe your, you know, his position vis-a-vis Miriam and Clara, they saw his attitudes as being, you know, masculinist
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and denigrating of women and raising men above them. And it was very hard to, uh, it's very hard to shake that from large numbers of, uh, from a large readership and a large audience who uh who bought into that view. And uh it he's never gonna go away. But I'm saying his reputation took a big hit. And so he's not on the, he doesn't come to mind when people ordinarily think of well, who should I read for a classic, you know, English. Writer? Sure.
0: I don't know enough about him to say it was by any means the entirety of his project. But I would say if you wanted to see an an early example of a 20th century author who tried to give people a worldview without God, who tried to give people an idea of how do you make sense of life where there's not not a a God who cares and who has brought some structure or order to the universe, Uh, this is an example of someone who paved the way. For that kind of of uh, of worldview and in a sense and that's where I see him uh, keeping in step with uh, a Henry David Thoreau
1: well we can agree on that I have no I have no uh, no objections to that observation
0: well dad thank you for the uh, the the education that you keep giving me it really is. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's fun to read a book, but it's, it's even better to read a book and to be able to talk about it with someone who knows it so well. And I do want to remind our listeners that if you would like to email with any thoughts or any ideas or any questions, uh, you can email us at Island idols. That's Island and idols is I D Y L L S at gmail.com. Any last word, dad?
1: Well, I'll be looking forward to any observations that people, you know, have to make and want to send along. I, I second your, you know, your reminder that emails are, are appropriate. And I enjoy this conversation with you as I do all of them. It's always good to be able to spend time with you. Uh, you're so far away or I'm so far away. <laughs> this, is a, this is a very, very nice way to communicate. Thanks.
0: So oh, true. Well, aloha, Dad. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.